Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast. Today, my guest is Nalanthony Rajason, and we talk about healing generational trauma. Nalanthony's parents were very young in their mid to late teens and early 20s when the Sri Lankan war broke out. It ended up being a genocide. Everything that her parents knew, their sense of self and safety and security, everything shattered and crumbled. And they were fortunate enough that they were able to escape and become refugees in Canada. The way that they viewed the world and reality and their sense of safety and security shaped how they raised their children. Nalanthony overcompensated by trying to be perfect and do everything to please her family. It was that which ended up just draining her and she started going into a depression and started contemplating suicide. It was in that moment that her friend actually did commit suicide. Her friend that she looked at that was so perfect that had everything going well in her life. And when she saw the suicide letter, she realized that she could have written it herself. Her friend was living her life for other people trying to please them. It was in that moment that Nalanthony started to question everything that she knew, why she liked certain foods, colors, people, movies, books, everything. It was that moment when she cracked wide open, started living life for herself, found her sense of self, and was able to break through that generational trauma. The reason I like this topic is there's a lot of talks about how trauma affects the next generation and the epigenetics of that. But I also think no matter what the trauma, it could be big, it could be small, a trauma impacts everybody differently. But traumas impact us and they impact the way that we raise our children. And so sometimes we need to break through those layers to figure out who we are and what our wants and desires and needs are and to break that imprinting. So I find this story really inspirational. I hope you enjoy it. Please give us a like, a share, and a subscribe. And I'm just going to hop right on into today's episode. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast, a place to explore possibility through mindfulness, movement, and self-discovery. Our intention is to deliver insight and inspiration while fostering conversations that are genuine, unfiltered, and deeply human. We hope you will enjoy today's episode. Good morning, Nalanthony. I want to thank you so much for coming onto the Connected Community Podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So today we're going to discuss generational trauma. And I want to know, first of all, like, what does that mean to you when I say that? For me, it's carrying the weight of your family's hardships um, and and, yeah. and just carrying that weight on your shoulders. Um, yeah having that dark cloud that just stays over your family. It never goes away. Um, yeah. That's like the visual depiction of what I think generational trauma is. Yeah. I mean, lately there's a lot of talk about epigenetics too, about how mm -hmm. something affects somebody um, with a trauma and then how it kind of goes into our genes and our body. Oh, yeah. um, but I also think like if somebody has a trauma and they're a parent, it's going to affect the way that they parent their children. And so that's mm -hmm. kind of the trickle down effect. Let's start with your story about mm -hmm. where your family came from and, and your evolution up until this point. Yeah, for sure. So I'm um, Sri Lankan Tamil. So my ethnicity is Tamil. My pit family is from Sri Lanka. So it's an island off of India. And um, in that small little island, there's a majority group and a minor minority group. So the majority are called Sinhalese and they're usually Buddhist. 
and the minority would be the Tamil community, which kind of majority of them would be Hindu. Mm -hmm. So for years, um, there was always tensions between the two groups, um, in particular during the British rule. So the British ruled there for a bit. And when they left around 1940s, um, that the tensions grew even more. But it was in 1983 when there was, it's called a Black Friday, or Black July. Sorry, Black July is when there is a week long, um, they call it massacres. It's referred to 1983 riots. Um, there was a week long, just absolute chaos of people targeting Tamil, the Tamil minority that lived in that city. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I mean by that is um, there were certain... Um, Tamil scriptures and books that it was uh, it was outlawed to import them into Sri Lanka, and a lot of the times um, certain people were Tamil community was blocked from certain getting certain positions. It was like these like little laws that started to build a lot of tension, and actually there was um, a group of uh, Sinhalese people ended up targeting a a Tamil library in Jaffna. Jaffna is like north of the island, and that's where a lot of the Tamil population lived. And um, this library was targeted and it was burnt down. So a mm. lot of the Tamil scriptures and books and everything was gone. This is years and years of tension building up. But this particular event, unfortunately, led to a week long of riots where people were killed, lost their mm. homes, kids were orphaned. Um, I remember hearing stories from my uncle and my mom and dad saying how they were literally hiding and, and like just like waiting for it to pass because, you know, if anyone... If if their neighbor or someone said, "Oh yeah, we know Tamil people. They live down there," like that would be it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I guess by God's grace that you know my dad lived in the city, so my dad and my you know his family survived the riot. So this week long um, riot triggered the war of 1983, and when the war started in 1983, my mother was 14, 15 years old, and my dad was 20. Mm-hmm. So my dad lived in the city where. Um, the Tamil minority group was being targeted. So by the police and by the military, they would either listen to hear what language they're speaking, or um, they would get ID'd. And based on the name, they can tell what you are. Mm. And if you were unfortunate enough to be caught, or someone ratted you out, the military and the police would take you, arrest you, and they were tortured, they were held for ransom. Yeah. So the military would say, hey, if you want your son back or if you want your kid back, give me all this money. Wow. So that was what my dad was going through in the city. Mm-hmm. My mother, on the other hand, she lived up north. It was more of a condensed population of the Tamil community. And my mother, she would tell me stories of waking up at 1 to 2 a.m., hearing airplanes overhead, and they would be dropping bombs. So yeah. imagine just like sleeping, but in the middle of the night, just waking up and just running. Their bunker was outside of their house so they had to run to their bunker oh my god yeah my mother had um this fear of women and children young girls were being targeted by the military oh yeah yeah so you know like imagine 14 15 years old being told by your mother hey listen like don't go out by a certain time because the army's gonna get you yeah so my you know my mother my Ants had to stay together at all times. They had to go in groups. They had to be home at a certain hour. They had a gate around their compound, so they had to be locked in their gate. They had to stay in the house. You know, it was that constant fear. Yeah. And my mother came to Canada when she was 19. My mm-hmm. dad came here when he was 23. So the war went on from 1983 to 2009. 
My parents oh my just happened to leave Wow. But around the fourth year, third year of the war. How did they leave? They had to just get rid of everything that they had. Um, mm. My grandmother had saved up a lot of money and she used that money to get my, uh, my parents were able to apply for refugee status. And then wow. they came to Canada with the money yeah. that their parents had given them. Yeah. They had to save money and, and find ways to collect money here and there, sell things that they have just to get their children out at this point. Wow. My grandmother came mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. Both of my grandparents, their goal was to just to get all the kids out. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you're talking about this, I have to say there's a couple of things that strike me is mm -hmm. one, that your family shared this so openly and like really shared their story. Cause I think a lot of times when people go through war or trauma, mm -hmm. they don't want to talk about it and it triggers them and they don't share and they keep it to themselves. I know my grandfather was in the war and that yeah. was his experience and all this PTSD. So I think it's really cool that your family shared so deeply with you. Mm -hmm. And then hearing you speak, I can hear that you have integrated that. Like you can feel it. You can um, feel that empathy and that understanding for their experience, mm -hmm. um, which says a lot about the strength of your family unit, that there mm -hmm. is that openness and that sharing and that exchange and compassion going both mm -hmm. ways. I think that's really cool. I thank you for that. That's really kind. It was only recently, like in the last maybe three, four years that we were able to have this conversation with my family. Yeah, and they couldn't it, really live in the present moment no. of where they were because they were kind of living in two places at the same time. Exactly. And it is like fear and it was like anger too because people are getting killed back home, but no one wants to intervene. People assume that the government's meant to protect them and look after them. They assume that their neighbors won't rat them out. They assume that people that they grew up with, you know, will protect them. But that wasn't the case, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of passed down to me. But for my parents, Living in that constant fear, not knowing what's going to happen in the future, not knowing whether your parents are going to make it okay, not knowing whether you're going to be targeted in this new country, that survivor's guilt as well. My parents had to go through that while they had to raise three kids. Yeah. Most kids watch TV and watch cartoons, but when I would come home, I would hear the radio talking about the bombs and people dying and I would hear a woman crying. I remember like this distinct memory of this woman mm -hmm. just crying on the radio because her daughter died. And she can't find her husband. Like, imagine like coming yeah. home from school and hearing that. That's so much heaviness in the home and so much fear that's there, like oh, 100% yeah. of the time, just kind of like this dark cloud looming over wherever you and your family were. Yeah. And when there were conversations or very emotional conversations. Mm -hmm. It was one of those things where we, maybe my sisters and I didn't want to ask or get involved yeah. with because we were afraid of the response and the answers. It was good to hear the stories, but it was just like horror stories, like one after another. Yeah. And so for me, that's why I said like only it was only recently that we were able to have proper conversations because before when we'd have conversations, both my parents would get very emotional and angry. Whereas yeah. now that emotion is still there, but it's more level headed. Um, yeah. But it, it took a while to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does kind of give you the message that the world is not a safe place, that mm -hmm. you're not. And that it would probably be difficult to trust anybody, right? Because oh, yeah. people were ratting each other out and all these unexpected things are happening. So then there's this message in your home. It's not safe. We can't trust. Yeah. yeah. Like for my yeah. parents specifically, um, it was the need to control because yeah. they didn't have control of what would happen um, back home. You know, it's just like not, not knowing of what's yeah. going on and not knowing what's going to happen next. So 
um, the way that it translated down to my sisters and I was that need to have 100% knowledge and you need to know everything that's going on. Why? Because you want to protect them from anything wrong happening because no parent wants their child to go through what they went through. And my parents went through a nightmare. You know, at the time, a lot of our people weren't in Canada. So it's just being a minority, feeling kind of alone, um, not really having anyone else to understand what you went through for so long. So, you know, that challenge with your own ethnicity. Because Mm -hmm. it's like, you can't change who you are, but yet it kind of felt like a dirty little secret. Like it was like an internal struggle with our ethnicity. It's like, do we not tell people what we are? Do we have to kind of keep it on the down low? Like I remember doing a project where we had to talk about, you know, our, our ethnicity and culture. And I was afraid to put that I was from Sri Lanka, that I was Tamil. Like I was scared to do that it was seen as like a bad thing or it was, it was, it felt, we felt like we had to kind of keep who we are on the down low. We, my sisters and I, and I tried so hard to embrace the, the Western, um, you know, mindset or the Western culture more. And over time, as a result, what happened was we, we slowly drifted away through uh, from our, our true ethnicity and our culture. Mm-hmm. And that's something yeah. that's my biggest regret because it's only, again, until the last couple of years where I started to really dig into our culture, really understand, you know, what does it mean to be Tamil? What is the history? Because growing up, I felt like it was something that I had to hide or be ashamed of. Yeah. And that's ridiculous. You shouldn't be ashamed of who you are. I, I, I particularly noticed with my generation, a lot of um, people in my generation are embracing it more yeah. um, because of, you know, for years, it felt like we had to kind of dilute who we are. Uh, um, yeah. And that's, that's terrible. Like, I should be proud of, you know, saying, like, I'm Tamil and, and my parents went through this and they overcame, you know, so much adversity just to come here and, you know, give me a better life. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's, a, that's like a, a really a bold statement that I hate saying, but it was something mm-hmm. that I had to kind of really acknowledge um, to really get through all this stuff because, you know, this, this, uh, my parents' response of control led to you know me feeling like I was you know I had to be on my best behavior all the time I had to be perfect all the time because you know the response that I saw from my family was in order to avoid any kind of trauma or any kind of hardship you have to be perfect you have to know everything you have to do everything right why because any slip up will cause into result into something bad happening to you or someone or people not liking you or people coming Mm -hmm. after you but if you're perfect everyone likes you and yeah. nothing bad will happen to you. And and that's kind of what fed down to me and my sisters, along with the internal struggle of accepting our ethnicity. Yeah. So it was tough. It was tough because, you know, there was this pressure of we need to be perfect. We need to do well. And why? Because people back home went through this. So I need to, mm-hmm. and my parents went through this. So I need to be better, do better. I need to get the fancy degree. I need to get the big paying job. Why? Because I want to make sure that, you know, everything that my parents went through wasn't in vain. And then there was this tremendous amount of pressure um, that I put on myself, uh, coupled with, you know, the need from control from my parents' side. And Mm -hmm. to no fault of anyone, I always say that everyone's reaction either comes from a place of love or fear. And in this case, it was fear. And I, mean, I do remember when we were talking before, you said that 
that generational trauma came down into that um, you wanted to be perfect, be the great student, to have a good career, mm-hmm. um, that it wasn't even necessarily that your parents were pushing you, but it was this internal feeling that they had sacrificed so much and been through so much that you needed to be and do and be the best that you could possibly yeah. be. Um, and so let's talk about that journey of how you kind of broke that open. Oh, um, oh yeah. So for me, it was coupled with being the eldest. There is this um, additional pressure of, okay, I have two little sisters. I got to, I got to be the example. It's like, I'm doing good. I'm perfect. Mm-hmm. Or I would try to do all the sports teams. I would try to you know, help out, change a diaper here and there when my sister was younger. Like I would just try to be like that perfect kid. And, you know, as I grew older and older, I just felt like I was disconnecting more and more with my authentic self. It didn't really matter what I wanted. It was more so, okay, what can I do to make, to get that um, approval and validation from my parents? Like, what can Mm -hmm. I do to show them that I'm doing good? I felt so drained or numb and empty. And it was coupled with, you know, um, all these other things are just years and years of built up, like needing to be perfect. And no matter what I do, it's not good enough. And, and it's just, it's just yeah. everything is toppled down at me at one at once, because it was when I went to university that I saw that what I was going through, a lot of people didn't go through. And I thought it was normal. Like I thought this need to be perfect and buttoned up. And at one point I, there was a time where I just said, what's the point? Like, no matter what I do, it's not good enough. And I was actually considering taking my, I was debating like, you know, um, not being here anymore. Like I just, yeah. I was sitting there, I remember sitting there at my desk and like thinking like, okay, what's, what can I do? Like that it will make it, you know, as painless as possible. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, by God's grace, I have really good friends, but I was reaching out to some friends and saying like, I can't do this anymore. Like enough's enough. Like, I just don't want to be here anymore. I'm done. Mm-hmm. And, well, good for you for reaching out. Oh yeah. That. Like, I think that's my biggest, like that actually yeah. saved me because I think deep down, like I didn't want to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So me reaching out was just me looking for external validation or something like something to, so, for mm-hmm. someone to tell me like, no, like, you're fine. You're not, it's not because you're imperfect. It's like, you know, you're, you're good. So luckily yeah. like I had a friend that kind of gave me tough love and she was like, why are you trying so hard to please everyone? She goes, honestly, like, you're just a pushover. Like, stop, like, just do what you want. Um, enough's enough. And I, I think that's what helped me kind of pull me out of it because in my head, I was thinking like, I put this expectation on myself, but at the same time, all these other people put their expectations on me. And yet I'm the one that's in this dark hole. Um, the fact that I'm questioning whether I want to be here or not, like that's, that's dark. That's terrible. Like I don't wish that upon anyone. Mm-hmm. And, and from there I was, it kind of started, I would say phase one of me trying to figure out like, who am I really? Like, what do I want? Like at the time I identified as I'm an engineering school and I'm a great big yeah. sister. Like, like when people yeah. say, who are you? That was all I had. There was no substance. It was so surface level. And I think mm-hmm. from there, I started to re-examine like, who I was. Um, you know, I used to think that I was too loud and too um, upfront, and I had to dilute that. But then I realized, like, no, like that's who I am. And I used to dim that because it made other people uncomfortable. And I thought I was the issue, but it's not. Like, it's just, it's, mm-hmm. I'm not the but issue. How did you realize that you weren't? What made it you took me, realize It that? took me years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it took me years. I think seeing other role models or other people in the world like that kind yeah. of made me feel like it's not just me. Like it's not, 
I'm not the only one like this. And I just, yeah. you know, having that sense of community and finding people who are similar to myself that, you know, they, they don't want to be too timid and shy and, and they're okay with, you know, speaking up and being out there in the world. So I think seeing that out in the world and having interactions with people like that made me accept that it's not the issue. It's, it's just who I am. Um, yeah. And I shouldn't be ashamed of that. Yeah. So, and um, so what, when I go back to saying that was phase one of me discovering myself, mm-hmm. um, phase two is much darker. So I thought I was doing the work to discover who I was. Yeah. Um, but again, it was surface level again, uh, because all of a sudden my description went from, I'm an engineer, I'm a big sister, I go to the gym, and I'm loud. <laughs> that was what my description <laughs> became. You added and, a couple things. And I thought, great, I figured out who I am. I work out, I'm, I'm a loud person, I'm an engineer, it's this, this, and that. Mm-hmm. But then um, February of 2021, I got a phone call that a friend of mine died by suicide. Mm. She was the purest person I've ever met. She was absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, smart, kind, helpful. She just was just pure light, like just a happy, I used to call her like a happy little bunny. And I never knew anything was wrong. So when I got this phone call, I remember just screaming on the phone, accusing the person of lying. Mm. It didn't make sense to me. Like this girl in my eyes, she was perfect. Like she was doing everything right. She got the fancy degree. She had a good job that everyone loved her. She got into MIT. She was beautiful. She dressed nice. She had a lot of friends. She was respectful. Like in my head, she was perfect. And I had no understanding of why. And moments later, I had her suicide letter, actually. And to this day, I I have it because it's a constant reminder. Um, And in the suicide letter, you know, first I was just confused and angry. Like, why? Why would she do this? Like, why didn't she call me? Why didn't she talk to me? Mm -hmm. Um, And as I was going through this letter, I slowly started to read the pieces of the letter and it and there was a moment where I realized like she just she wasn't telling her story. She was also telling my story. Mm-hmm. There was a specific line in her letter that said, um, I know I always I always try to do the right thing. I want to be that bright, positive person. I want to do the person that does the great big things and bring joys to others. I thought this was the only way to live, the only right way to live. And that's when it triggered me in in the sense of like, that's how I've been living my life for the last 25 years. And that's when the anger started boiling up in me because this beautiful soul felt like she was the one that was broken and she was the one that was wrong because she felt this way. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't her fault. It's It's the society around us that makes us feel like we have to live this perfect life, be better, be perfect, always strive to be the best, like have no faults, no issues, like serve others and and be happy and positive. And, and the next couple of days were just, I just felt like I was just going through the motions because the letter kept just repeating in my mind. Mm -hmm. I was questioning everything about myself, um, right down to why did I go to engineering school? Do I really like this job? Or is it because it's something that my parents can brag about? Do I really like working out or is it because I feel like I have to work out to be this ideal body type that everyone strives for? Do I really like the color blue and green? Everything down to, mm-hmm. I'm not even joking. I even question why I like ankle socks. Like little every single minute mm-hmm. detail, I just felt like I was spiraling. Like every single detail about myself, mm-hmm. I was judging and, and 
you know, clothes that I wear? Do I really like to wear this thing? Why do I wear this thing? Why do I have certain colors in my bedroom? Like everything about myself, I just question. And that's when I realized like the phase one of me trying to figure out who I am was so surface level. And it wasn't even as deep as I needed to go. Mm -hmm. so that was my rude awakening call my friend was also struggling with the idea of being perfect we were both on this journey of perfectionism yeah and only one of us is still here so that's terrifying to think about and i'm and it terrifies me that other you know people are feeling this way as well and for me that's when i started to really dig deep within myself i went to a therapist that specialized on trauma and i had to really understand why I am the way that I am and that and the, the answer to that was my how I grew up in my childhood and then that led to okay what did your parents go through okay fine how did that translate to you yeah so understanding that and just really letting that register and like letting that sit in was like the first critical step because I either had a I was at a crossroads I either keep going down what I'm doing and god knows where I would have ended up or two yeah. is I I need to like wake the hell up and like figure out who Mm. I am what do I want in this life not what Mm. I need to do to get society's approval not what I need to do to get my parents approval let like because everything I did was to tell my parents that I was going to be okay I'm I'm perfect I'm fine don't worry yeah but there's other ways to do other ways to show your parents that you're going to be okay um without allowing the fear and the trauma to dictate every single decision that you make in your life yeah I am curious when you started evaluating, like, do I like these socks? Do I like these colors? Do Mm. I like these movies? Do I like this career path? Um, How many, how many of those things landed that were correct? And how many of them did you have to toss out? Oh gosh, I would say maybe it was a good, like 60, 40 split, like 60 with like throwing things out and 40 is like, Mm -hmm. okay, this actually registers with me. Like it makes sense. Um, And that took me like a, a good like year or so to really yeah. dive in and figure out because you've been living this way for personally for myself it was 25 years so literally any any voice or any opinion inside me I had to like shove it down so yeah. now I had to kind of start telling that voice like oh it's okay to come out like come out come out come out it just doesn't mm-hmm. change or get better overnight it takes years I'm still trying yeah. to figure it out it's I think it's a discovering of your true purpose and who you are authentically I think it's a lifelong journey because things change. Certain events change things about you. Certain events make you realize certain things about yourself. So for me, it's, it's not stagnant, Mm. but I think now this, now the perspective has changed from why did you do this to me to, okay, how can I take what you did and how can I myself learn, take your lessons that you went through and how can I apply it in a healthy and practical way? That yeah. isn't, you know, going to repeat the cycle of what I went through. I mean, the way that you broke that pattern was to face all of the mm-hmm. um, expectations that you'd put on yourself and others had put on you and then yeah. start to get curious and question everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes it takes going into that dark place like you did mm-hmm. where you're ready to give up and everything's just really heavy and it's just too much to have the courage and the willpower and the drive to dive into that darkness mm-hmm. um, and explore it because it's not easy and it's a really good and easy thing to avoid. And I think that was the key for you to break that 
generational trauma and not to pass that on to your next generation. If you decide to have kids yeah. and like you said, that um, you're not going to go in there with that fear. Yeah. A hundred percent. I would say to this day, I always have to do constant temperature checks and I think I will have to do this for the like rest of my life. And yeah. that's fine. That's okay. Because this is a way for me to kind of come back into my own self and for my own body and, and really understand, okay, um, how am I feeling right now? Like, why do I feel this way? Is this because of this or is it because I'm feeling unsafe or is it because I'm not sure whether I'm doing this for me or is it for the approval of someone else or for, yeah. you know, out of fear. And I do that constantly. Um, if, if, I, if I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed or I don't feel safe, I either excuse myself for a quick, like, you know, walk outside or, you know, if it's not an environment where you can leave, I often find just putting my hand on my belly and just doing mm -hmm. like three deep breaths usually helps uh, because that kind of helps center you back um, and helps you kind of just pause for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and it resets your nervous system too, just taking those breaths and does, just getting yeah. in the moment for a second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for me, that that is just huge. But I think a lot of people don't understand that this is a lifelong process. It's always going to be a part of me. It's always going to be a part of my history. It's always going to be part of my culture. So it's something that we have to learn to, one, recognize, respect, yeah. and take the lessons away from it and find a way to honor in our own yeah. ways. So yeah. I think that's something a lot of people need, I hope they take away is yeah. there's a way to respect and recognize the trauma, but there's a way to honor it in a way that is healthy. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I think that's beautiful. Like embracing it, not pushing it away, mm -hmm. learning about it, sharing with your family so that they feel seen and heard. And then also that next generation so that they understand where they came from Yeah, um, and the lessons that were learned along the way. Mm -hmm. And then what they can take away from that. And so using that trauma as like a strength. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's beautiful. I want to thank you so much for your time and sharing your story and your vulnerability and your openness and your open-mindedness. Um, how can people connect with you if they wish to connect? Oh, of course. Um, you can reach out to me on either LinkedIn or Facebook, Nell Anthony Rajason. Or if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at Nell, N-E-L dot Rajason, R-A-J-E-S-A-N. Um, and I'll be happy to connect with anyone. I'd love to hear uh, their stories. Thank you for listening to the Connected Community Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe. I can be found at www.nikkiyyoga.com, N-I-C-K-Y-Y-Y-O-G-A.com. Until I see you again next week, I hope you have a beautiful day.